Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today I'm joined by Professor John Coffey, who is Professor of Early Modern History at the University of Leicester. John is an accomplished historian who's published widely on Protestant history, uh, and he's the editor of Volume 1 of the Oxford History of Protestant Dissenting Traditions, the Post-Reformation Era, 1559 to 1689. It was published last summer in 2020. And this is the book that we're going to discuss here today. John, congratulations on the book, and thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Zach. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Yeah, well, it's great to have you here. And and as I mentioned beforehand, now I've just appreciated and benefited from your work for some time. And and this book is really no exception to that. Uh, But before we get into the book, uh, can you tell our listeners a little more about yourself? Sure, yeah. you probably can't tell from my accent, but I was actually born in Ireland, uh, in Northern Ireland, to be more precise, uh, right at the start of what are known as the Troubles, the, the armed conflict in Northern Ireland from the late 60s through to the, the 90s. But then I moved to England, the north of England, when I was about seven. Um, and it's probably not irrelevant that my father was a Presbyterian minister who then became a Baptist. And that's that's why, why we moved over to England to a different church. Um, so I, I grew up in uh, nonconformist churches. So that, that's my sort of backstory. Uh, perhaps explains the Northern Ireland background, why I'm interested in religious conflict and toleration. But it also means, I suppose, I have something of an insider uh, perspective um, on nonconformist history. Uh, though it's interesting, I think, looking at this volume and looking more generally at the people who write about dissent and about religious history in the early modern period, how diverse they are, really. Um, and I'm quite interested in, in what's sometimes called the insider-outsider problem um, or, or dynamic. You know, so some uh, historians write about a tradition they're quite familiar with personally. Anglicans writing about Anglicanism, nonconformists about nonconformity, Catholics about Catholicism. But plenty of other people write from sort of outside those traditions about them. And um, I, I tend to think it's quite help, healthy that you have both insiders and outsiders writing about religious traditions because religious communities need to reckon with their own history uh but equally religious history is too important if you like to be left to insiders it's it's uh it's of wider interest in understanding the past and the present um so you asked about my um my work and, and what i've done to date um so i i studied at uh, cambridge university that's where i did my phd and then i've taught for 20 years at the university of leicester uh, and Leicester in the in the 19th century was actually one of the great centres of English nonconformity. Lots of Baptists and Congregationalists and Quakers and Methodists. Um, and my own work is really focused on various aspects of uh, Anglophone Protestant culture. You know, from hymnody to political thought. Uh, and I've ranged fairly widely, really, from the late 16th to the the 19th century. Uh, though until recently, I was mainly focused on the 17th century. So I did my PhD on the Scottish Covenanter, Samuel Rutherford, 
who wrote works of political theory, but also devotional works uh, and works of theology. Um, I wrote a book on persecution and toleration in Protestant England, which covers the same sort of span as this this book, uh, from the Act of Uniformity in 1559 to the Act of Toleration in 1689. Uh, and then I've written quite a lot around the English Revolution, a book on John Goodwin, who was one of the few clergymen to defend the regicide of Charles I, uh, and then John Milton, the poet. Um, and I've also written a sort of a, on a broader period in a book on Exodus, uh, Exodus and Liberation, which was about the sort of political use of the Exodus story from um, from the Reformation, really, right through to the, the civil rights movement. But the most recent project I've finished is, is, is a team project uh, led by Professor Neil Keeble, which was to produce uh, a major edition with Oxford University Press of uh, the memoir of Richard Baxter, uh, he's one of the leading dissenting uh, clergy of the, the 17th century, the Reliquiae Baxteriani, and that's, that, that came out in 2020 during lockdown, so we had to sort of celebrate on Zoom, but that, that's the most recent project that I've, that I've finished. Well, you've, you've certainly contributed quite a bit to, to the scholarship on Protestant dissent, um, and here the, there's a really impressive list of contributors also in this volume, uh, can you talk to us about what led to the editing of this volume and, and what was the push to have this book written? Yeah, so about a decade or so ago, I co-edited with my friend Paul Lim Vanderbilt, um, the Cambridge Companion to Puritanism. So this uh, this is not a dissimilar project, but but it, I, I was invited by Tim Larson and uh, Mark Knoll, uh, who were um, the general editors of this Oxford history of Protestant dissenting traditions to edit the first volume uh, on the post-Reformation era. Um, and they were, in a sense, responding to the Oxford history of Anglicanism, uh, which was also coming out, edited by Rowan Strong. And both of these series are five volumes each. They both start with a volume on the post-Reformation era, then they, uh, they have a volume on the long 18th century, then a volume on the 19th century, then a couple of volumes about... Um, modern Anglicanism, modern dissenting traditions and the globalization of them. Um, so I, I was attracted by uh, the bigger project uh, and also by the prospect of drawing together a sort of team of leading scholars to write about, to write, I suppose, an up-to-date account of post-Reformation Protestant dissent. Well, the the history of Protestant dissent, it it is a complicated one, uh, you know, for example, disputed origins of dissent uh, on, on terminology, um, several turning points along the rise of dissent. Maybe it would be helpful to have you kind of lay out for us what Protestant dissent in the post-Reformation era is and and how scholars have, have sought to understand it. Yeah, that's a great question, Isaac. Um, so I, I guess dissent assumes or implies establishment you know that there's dissent against an establishment in the case of church histories one's thinking of a, an established church um dissent in england was sort of a legal category you know those who refuse to conform to the acts of uniformity so in protestant england there are a number of these acts of uniformity under edward the sixth and then elizabeth first in 1559 and then at the restoration of the monarchy uh, in 1662, and they required everyone to worship by the book, 
you know, to, to worship in the parish church, uh, according to the Book of Common Prayer, the, the, the common liturgy of the English people. So they assumed that the entire population would be gathered into one national church. So Protestant dissenters are those who, against the law, legally, um, broke away from the, the Protestant national church. Um, and, and that, if you like, is um, dissent with a capital D. Though I suppose we could also think of dissent with a small d, uh, internal dissent within the church. So, so many of those people who eventually break away from the Church of England or set up separate churches are initially small d dissenters within the, within the established church. Um, in terms of its rise, uh, in the early years of Elizabeth's reign, there were very few separatists. There were very few Protestants who broken away from the national church. Uh, there was a much more substantial number of Catholic recusants, uh, but Protestant dissenters were, were few in number. Um, and that only really changes in the middle decades of the uh, 17th century. And it's partly in response to two great attempts to transform the national church. Um, first of all, Charles I and Archbishop Lord try and pull the church in a, in a high church direction, uh, emphasizing priestly authority and ceremony and the beauty of holiness and kneeling at communion and clerical vestments and so on. And this provokes a great backlash initially, actually, in, in Scotland, where, the, where there's a prayer book rebellion, which then leads on to the birth of a covenanter movement, to bishops' wars, then the recall of Parliament in England, and the outbreak of civil war in 1642 between Parliament and King. And it's in that political context, that upheaval, that uh, Puritans, those who are trying to purify the Church of England, make it more like the continental Calvinist churches, they really uh, undertake a second great attempt at reforming the English church. Uh, and that's where the, the groups that we, we think of as Protestant descent really become uh, very well established. I mean, they, they have progenitors in the Elizabethan and early Stuart period, but it's really in the 1640s and 50s during the English Revolution that groups like the Presbyterians and the Congregationists and the Baptists and the Quakers become uh, established. And although they're severely persecuted during the Restoration, uh, especially Quakers and Baptists, they survive, they even thrive. And in, in 1689, at the, the glorious revolution, the revolution of uh, William III, um, the Act of Toleration grants official toleration to those particular groups. So that by the early 18th century, something like 6% or more of the English population uh, are meeting in these breakaway Protestant denominations. Um, there are about 2,000 meeting houses. The largest group would be Presbyterians. The, then there's the Congregationists, the Baptists, the Quakers. So that's, that's a, a brief story of the rise of dissent. I guess one of the things we're trying to do in this book, and one of the things that the contributors to the Oxford History of Anglicanism tried to do as well, is complicate things by emphasising that it's not a simple story of two clear sides, you know, a sort of establishment Anglicanism versus an insurgent Puritan descent, but that actually that there are various attempts to um, overhaul the church by both Anglicans and, and Puritans. Uh, and, and it's starting to become more sceptical, really, about the dichotomy between Anglican and Puritan and the polarity between establishment and descent, because 
uh, groups like the Presbyterians in the 1640s were really the the establishment when they, they were trying to reform the church. The Congregationists close to Oliver Cromwell in the 1650s were also uh, part of the religious establishment. Uh, they were setting the tune for the Cromwellian church. I mean, even the Quakers, in a sense, become a sort of cultural establishment in Pennsylvania. Um, and of course, the Episcopalians, who eventually come out on top in England, are a, a minority, are, are a, um, uh, they're uh, dissenters in Cromwellian England in the 1650s. Uh, and in Scotland after 1689, they're also a minority group who are lobbying for toleration. So there's a sense in which um, establishment and dissent are not two fixed sides or parties. There's quite a lot of shifting between them over the course of the 17th century. And that's one of the things that the, this volume and the Oxford History of Anglicanism, I think, are trying to capture some of the contingency of Anglicanism and, dis- and dissent. Well, that's really helpful. It, and it does kind of situate this volume and, and what some of the ideas are around the history of, of Protestant dissent in, in this period. Um, and, and maybe where this new volume sort of fits in. Uh, it's an impressive volume, as, as I've mentioned. It contains 20, 21 chapters across four different sections here. Uh, can you comment on the narrative structure of the book and how these four uh, groupings headline the book? Yeah, sure. The, the, the structure is basically the same for each of the five volumes in the series. So I inherited, if you like, the structure. So it begins with uh, part one, which are traditions within England, then it moves beyond England to thinking of traditions outside or beyond England. And then we've got more thematic chapters around descent in the world, and then in part four, congregations and living or dissenting life. Um, so part one deals with those major dissenting traditions that emerge from 17th century England and Scotland uh, that I just mentioned, the Presbyterians, the Congregationists, the Baptists and the Quakers. Uh, Part two takes us outside England to look at Scotland and Ireland and Wales, which, of course, have their own very distinct stories, as well as looking at English migration into the Dutch Republic, uh, New England and colonial Quakerism, which which looks quite different depending on whether you're looking at New England or the Middle Colonies or the Caribbean. Uh, And then in the Descent in the World section, we've got um, set, uh, chapters really on uh, how dissent is related to the parishes, how they related to the state and how the state related to dissenters. We've got a chapter by Bernard Cap uh, on um, the, the dissent of the Puritan sort of attempt to reform the English nation in the 1640s and 50s uh, and a chapter on print culture. Uh, as well. And then in the final section, we have chapters on the Bible and theology, worship and sacraments, sermons and preaching, uh, women and gender and dissenting laity. So there are about 500 pages altogether. So it's quite a meaty volume. Uh, And what we're trying to do is present a rounded account of Protestant dissent, you know, one that is not just Anglo-centric, but takes into account other parts of the Atlantic world, um, and one that's not just focused on one denomination, but on, on uh, more widely, but also thinks about um, about the laity and not just the, the clergy as well and the wider context of dissent. And I guess the other thing we're trying to do is, uh, if you like, present an up to date account. So many people will know uh, a book by Michael Watt. Um, 
and Michael Watts, The Dissenters, which was published back in 1978. And it takes a story of Protestant dissent in England and Wales from the Reformation to the French Revolution. Um, but obviously a lot of historiographical water has passed under the bridge in the 40 years since that book was published. So we're trying to bring to light the, the, the scholarship really of the last generation or so to tell a more sort of up-to-date story about um, about the history of Protestant descent in the post-Reformation era. So we have these four sections of the book, and and after six chapters dealing with the traditions in England, as as you mentioned, we come to those outside of England, uh, and here we've already begun to see some of the fluidity and and religious identity within England uh, and the boundaries of descent and establishment. Um, are, are really at, at some points just as fuzzy beyond England. Um, and that could even be true in the case of colonial life in New England. Um, can you can you talk to us some about this this chapter here on, on New England? Yeah, so the chapter on descent in New England is written by um, Francis Bremer, who of course has, has written across his career really on, on Puritan New England and its relations with England. Um, and I guess Puritan New England has something of a fa- fearsome reputation, you know, partly we think of Nathaniel Hawthorne and the Scarlet Letter or Arthur Miller's The Crucible and um, Witch Hunts and the Trial of Anne Hutchinson and so on. So it has a bit of a Republic of Gilead feel, you know, in, in the popular memory. Um, that's not wholly unwarranted. I mean, actually, it's, it's interesting that in, New, in Massachusetts is, is one of the, um, the only places to execute Quakers. Uh, so there are about five Quakers executed in Massachusetts between 1659 and 1651, not for heresy, but for breaching a banishment order and returning and proselytizing. Um, but, you know, Quakers are, are imprisoned and uh, uh, subject to corporal punishment in England, but they're not actually executed. And ironically, it's Charles II who puts a stop to that. Um, but But New England seems like, I guess, a classic case of dissenters who go abroad uh, fleeing the Laudian uh, persecution of the 1630s, but then become persecutors themselves. But I think what's interesting about um, Frank Bremer's chapter is that he adds a lot of nuance. You know, he, he emphasizes um, that there was actually quite a lot of room for diversity within uh, the Massachusetts Bay congregations. Uh, there's actually quite a lot of um theological discussion and dissent, which is, is tolerated. There's also quite a lot of difference between uh, different colonies. So Massachusetts has a law of banishment against the Baptists um, and it executes Quakers, but that's not true of Connecticut or of New Hampshire or of Plymouth. So there's a fair bit of internal variation there. Um, and Massachusetts dissenters are often generated from within as well. You know, this is a sort of family quarrel people like Roger Williams or Anne Hutchinson or Henry Dunster who's the president of um, Harvard who resigns because he's he's adopted Baptist views um, these are figures really who emerge absolutely out of New England congregational life um, and he also points out that there are complicated attitudes among the New England elite towards these new religious sects and movements so uh, John Winthrop, who's the, the, one of the founders of Massachusetts Bay, uh, his son, John Winthrop Jr., is actually quite a radical figure, quite sympathetic to religious toleration and the Baptists. Um, and another son, Samuel Winship, uh, converts to Quakerism in, in the 1660s and becomes a, 
Quaker leader in the West Indies, but still maintains quite good relations with New England. So the picture is complicated even before we've added in Rhode Island, which Roger Williams establishes and which, of course, becomes a haven for various persecuted groups like uh, antinomians or Baptists or, or Quakers. Yeah, well, it, it, it is a really fine chapter that, that Frank, Frank Bremer uh, con- contributes here. Um, another one I wanted to bring up in our talk here was one by Jacqueline Rose on Descent in the State. Um, and here she makes some some interesting arguments about this paradoxical relationship between uh, the government and dissent, um, you know, talking about dissent as, as this legal category. Uh, could you share a bit about what this essay means for the book? Yeah, so I, I think it is picking up themes that sort of run right through the book, really, and articulating them very clearly. Um, you know, later dissenters tended to look back uh, at their forebears and emphasize the way they were persecuted and martyred. Um, but recent historiography, as I've explained, complicates the picture because it emphasizes that dissenters were serious contenders at points for um, control of the establishment, uh, certainly in the middle of the 17th century. <clears throat> um, and as, as um, Jacqueline Rose points out, they weren't always very sympathetic to religious toleration either. I mean, certainly the Presbyterians in the 1640s were highly critical of it, and Congregationalists would have believed in severe limits on religious toleration. Um, Her chapter, I think, as well picks up on the shifts in terms of the historiography of toleration. So an an older Whiggish picture uh, emphasises a fairly linear story, a progression from sort of medieval persecution to enlightenment toleration uh, based around heroic intellectuals who set out ideas of religious and intellectual freedom. But revisionist historians have tended to complicate that. You know, they've emphasized that uh, pre-enlightenment societies uh, often combined coercion with with coexistence, with accommodation. Uh, So even if you think of Restoration England, Quakers are being persecuted, but you can also find on the ground Quakers serving in civil roles in, in parishes. So there's a fair amount of uh, everyday ecumenism, as it's sometimes been called, uh, of toleration on the ground. And historians of toleration have been very interested in that across Europe, really, in, in the last um, generation. So they've emphasized um, that pre-Enlightenment Europe isn't just you know, awash with, with blood and persecution, but there are all kinds of interesting experiments in coexistence. Um, I mean, another example from the Restoration, I guess, would be um, the Baptist merchant, William Kiffin. You know, he's one of the leading Baptists of the period, but he's also one of the wealthiest merchants in London. And, you know, he has access to to the London elite and even at times to to court. Um, so, uh, you know, I, th- I think she, she's trying to uh, present a more nuanced view there of, of how things were in the 17th century. And equally reminding us that um, advocates of religious toleration like John Locke, who was was an Anglican, but very sympathetic to the plight of dissent, that Locke is, um, you know, famously limits toleration uh, to um, to Protestants and excludes uh, Roman Catholics and and atheists uh, in his letter concerning toleration. And that's fairly typical of of, um, many advocates of toleration in the 17th century and, and the early 18th century as well. So I think the the picture she presents is one that is is more complicated than both the older dissenting 
historiography, which tells a sort of story, a kind of martyrology. And it's more complicated than um, the, the older Whig history of toleration as well. Yeah, I think it definitely adds a, a critical piece to understanding uh, the category of dissent. And, you know, if readers are, are going to do that, understand dissent, you can't miss the role of the Bible and this post-Reformation theological culture. That's kind of what you set out anyway in, in your chapter on the Bible and theology. Um, can you share some of your arguments here about the age of biblical scholarship and also biblical dispute here? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, this chapter is having to cover quite quite a lot of ground, mm-hmm. um, but it did try and provide a, a map or at least a sketch of, of dissenting theological positions um, and attitudes towards the Bible, um, which is not an easy task because dissenters could actually be found all over the map um, theologically. So what I'm exploring, I suppose, in this chapter is the paradox that dissenters who were immersed in the Bible found scripture to be both a a common language and a a textual battleground so if you've ever anybody who's read 17th century uh, texts will realize they're bristling with biblical references but also the phraseology of of, uh, 17th century writers is often drenched in in scriptural phrases Um, so this is a culture in which the bible is sort of ubiquitous you know there it's been estimated that before 1640 there are about 600,000 copies of the whole Bible printed in England and about another million copies of the New Testament and Psalms. So about 1.5 million uh, copies of the scripture uh, in um, in a country with only four or five million people where many of the population are illiterate. So, uh, you know, emphasizes just how much English culture in this period is, is drenched in um the bible the culture of of the literate but also it's an oral culture so the bible's read out loud and many people who can't read are still familiar with it Uh, and the godly go to great lengths to disseminate the bible i mean perhaps the most striking example is in in massachusetts where the congregational minister john elliott uh together with a number of collaborators among native americans produces an Alconquian translation of, of the Bible, the whole Bible in the early 1660s, which is remarkable given that there wasn't a written language to begin with, you know, so this is a huge translation project and dissenters are very involved in biblical scholarship and commentary as well. Um, in terms of theology, most dissenters identified strongly with the reformed tradition, you know, so in other words, the tradition that stemmed from Calvin and Zwingli and Butzer and other great 16th century reformers. The shorthand way of saying this, I suppose, is to say they were Calvinists, um, though scholars nowadays tend to prefer to talk of reformed or reformed orthodoxy, which is not simply derived from Calvin, but is, is what, you know, a wider range of sources, and wasn't always obsessively focused on the doctrine of predestination, though, though English Protestants tend to be quite preoccupied by predestination, but it has a a much wider range of um, uh, interest theologically. Um, And among dissenters, it's propagated really through confessions of faith, as well as theological treatises. So the Westminster Confession of Faith, which Presbyterians and congregationists draw up initially for the National Church in the the 1640s, but then it becomes uh, a key point of reference for Presbyterians in in Scotland, but, but more widely in other areas where Presbyterians are found in, in later periods. 
Um, and then you get the spin-offs from that, the, the the adaptations of it, you know, the Savoy Confession of the Congregationalists, the, the, the Baptist Confessions. Um, so most Presbyterians, Baptist Congregationalists would have identified with um, Calvinism or with Reformed Orthodoxy, but not all. So um, many dissenters um, uh, were sceptical about subscription, required subscription to Confessions of Faith, uh, particularly Richard Baxter. Uh, who, who really sees Christian unity in terms of unity around the Apostles' Creed, maybe the Nicene Creed, but not not so much around modern confessions. And that will be very influential among 18th century dissenters, that view. But you also get many dissenters who are heterodox, you know, who, who embrace Arminian, Arminianism, uh, rejecting the Calvinist doctrine of uh, predestination. Um, uh, and that's particularly true among some of the Baptists. Um, you get antinomian groups who emphasize the Christian's freedom from the moral law. Um, and even anti-Trinitarianism uh, emerges among some radical uh, dissenters uh, from the 16, well, even in the early 17th century, but particularly from the 1650s. But I guess the most radical group are the Quakers, because the Quakers reject um, uh, the two Protestant sacraments you know, of uh, the, the communion and baptism. But they also emphasize the, the inner light as opposed to the external authority of the scriptural text. Um, and they reject uh, confessions and ordained clergy. Um, and they don't place the same emphasis on the atonement, on, on Christ's death on the cross, as, 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 as other um, reformed dissenters would have, would have done. Um, but I think it's also interesting that some of the theological disputes cut across denominational lines. And it's particularly striking that, you know, Ang Anglicans aren't just conservatives. I mean, all kinds of quite radical theological ideas emerge among Episcopalians uh, in the 17th century. Someone like Jeremy Taylor rejects Augustine's doctrine of original sin, for example. And you've got Anglicans in the later 17th century questioning traditional formulations around the Trinity. Um, and people like John Locke and uh, Isaac Newton are anti-Trinitarians, but they're also always members of the established church. And partly for that reason, they keep their anti-Trinitarianism very close to their chest. That's really helpful, John. And, you know, for such a complex portrait of the post-Reformation era, era of, of, of dissent, this book helps tease out. It does leave the question that you pose right at the beginning in, in your introduction, which is, what is the legacy of 17th century Protestant dissent? Um, what what can you say of, of or what can we say rather of, of the texts and traditions that have survived after the lives of those um, that we've talked about here? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a huge question, and of course, quite a lot of ink has been spilt about um, the legacy of, of 17th century uh, Puritanism and 17th century dissent. I mean, not, not least um, in relation to Max Faber's thesis about. Uh, Protestantism, Protestantism and Capitalism, uh, which was initially focused quite strongly on Puritanism, but he also wrote a, 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 an essay on Puritan and Protestant sects as well. Um, so I, I, I won't try and address the, the Weber thesis, which is probably a subject for a podcast in its own right. Um, but there are clearly institutional legacies. So the fact that uh, the survival of these um, four traditions 
Presbyterianism, which of course in many ways emanates from Scotland. I mean, not there's, there's, there's English Presbyterianism, but there's also Scottish Presbyterianism, and it, it tends to be Scottish Presbyterianism and Scots-Irish Presbyterianism that's exported to the United States. But the Congregationalists and the Baptists and the Quakers are groups which really emerge with a quite a distinct identity in 17th century England. Um, and they go on to have uh, a very important history. I and mean, they grow in importance in English history, but they're also, of course, uh, exported to other parts of the world. Um, so I think, you know, nowadays you'd probably have more Presbyterians in Korea than in, uh, than in Scotland and more Baptists in Brazil than in, in Britain. So there's the institutional legacy of those denominations that, that persist. There are also, I guess, intellectual legacies. Um, so various dissenting texts, confessions of faith, um, books like William Penn's No Cross, No Crown, the, the theological writings of Richard Baxter and uh, John Owen, um, and most of all, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, go on to acquire a kind of classic status, and they're republished many times and widely read in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, Dissenters also do, although they're divided about religious toleration, um, radical dissenters like Baptists and Quakers are, and some congregationalists, are quite important in really advancing ideas of liberty of conscience. Um, and uh, even by the early 18th century, the, the Presbyterians have, have come around to the idea that religion, that the individual has a right to choose their religion for themselves. So the Presbyterians by the early 18th century, having once defended religious uniformity, are now highly critical of it and are arguing for the individual conscience as kind of sacrosanct. And that, and that, that is an important legacy, I think, to the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and more broadly, I th there, are, there are political legacies. So, you know, there is a certain affinity uh, in England, certainly between religious dissent and political dissent, uh, partly, I think, because of the, the outsider status of dissenters, um, that they have a sort of oppositional ethos and can look at the status quo in a more critical way. They tend to gravitate in the 18th century towards the Whig party. Um, in the 19th century, there's a very strong alliance between uh, liberalism, political liberalism in uh, England and uh, nonconformity. Um, you know, Methodism is, is it feeds into the Labour Party and, and so on. Um, so the story of 17th century dissent has always attracted uh, historians on the on the left in, in England. Um, things are a bit different in the United States, of course, but even in the American, if you think of the American Revolution, I mean, Anglican loyalists complain bitterly about Puritan New England and the Presbyterian middle colonies. And they 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 see uh, the American Revolution as being sort of dissenting affair though of course it's a bit different in virginia with uh, with various low church uh, anglicans involved as well um but I, I do think there are political legacies and and you know there's an interesting kind of counterfactual question about the you know what um anglophone politics would look like without say a group like the quakers who, who are very much a product of the english revolution i mean they, they come from nowhere really in the late 1640s and 10 years, they've grown to about 50,000 people. But although they're always a small group compared to some other dissenters, uh, they are one of the most consistently oppositional. And of course, they make significant contributions to everything from anti-slavery and pacifism down to Amnesty International in the 1960s. So 
some of these developments in the middle of the 17th century in England do, I think, have long-term ramifications. Well, I think that's really well said there, John, and it helps wrap up this really exciting chance to hear from you on the book and, and hear about good scholarship on, on the development of post-Reformation descent. Uh, before we wrap up, though, uh, John, can you share with our listeners uh, what writing projects you're working on now and what they might expect from you next? Yeah, so my main project now is sort of taking me quite a long way from the mid-17th century uh, because I'm working with, um, I'm leading a, a project with um, a number of other colleagues to produce uh, a scholarly edition of the diaries of William Wilberforce, the, the Member of Parliament, who's most best well known for his contribution to um, the abolitionist movement, the abolition of the slave trade. Um, he left manuscript diaries, um, the surviving diaries contain about a million words, um, and only about 15% of this has ever been published in the past. So what we're doing is we've, we've now transcribed it, and we're correcting the transcription, and we've actually just begun the sort of annotation process, and, and the idea is in a few years' time to publish it with um, Oxford University Press, so it'll be a kind of big scholarly edition so that's sort of absorbing a lot of my time and it's, it's interesting because in some ways Wilberforce takes you takes me quite a long way from descent because he's very much an establishment figure an insider you know he's an Anglican um, he's um, hobnobbing on a regular basis with um, MPs with peers with members of the political and social elite with the aristocracy and the gentry um, on the other hand, he has many contacts with dissenters uh, as well. I mean, not least in Yorkshire. He's MP for Yorkshire. And Yorkshire is a great uh, centre of dissent and political or religious dissent in, in the, uh, the late 18th, early 19th century. And dissent is really growing and burgeoning in Wilberforce's lifetime. So groups like the Baptists and the Methodists and the Congregationalists um, are growing very fast. And he's got various connections with their missionary movements, but also with the Quakers around the slave trade and so on. So I'm, I'm not entirely leaving dissent behind, uh, though the I am now working on a, a famous Anglican, I suppose. Well, it sounds like a great project. Thanks for sharing that. Um, you know, for, for now, though, uh, thank you for putting together this excellent volume. It's volume one of the Oxford History of Protestant Dissenting Traditions. It was published with OUP uh, just in 2020. Uh, and John, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about the book, Zach. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on New Books and History, a channel on the New Books Network.